The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn in God's Word to Psalm 115. As a child, I committed an act at one time that I grew to become greatly ashamed of. I was trading baseball cards with a friend one afternoon, and he offered me a Jose Canseco rookie card, which at the time was worth quite a bit of money. In exchange for a card of mine that was practically worthless. Why, well, greedily took him up on his offer and boasted under my breath of getting such a great bargain. And uh, years later, it only serves me right that Jose Canseco, Mr. Steroid User, Mr. Tabloid, is, prat- is worth practically nothing today. And it's practically, practically worthless in value. The Bible describes idolatry as trading away the glory of God in exchange for worthless nothings. False gods are mere vanities that enslave people and reduce the glory of God revealed in the image of man to something beneath its dignity. As we conclude tonight our series in the Psalms, And as we anticipate a new series in the fall Sunday evenings in the Minor Prophets, we come to this psalm which offers a firm indictment against the problem of idolatry. There is no comparing of anything in all of creation to the marvelous glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I invite you to follow as I read Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord make you increase, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. 
It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to silence. It is we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, to you alone belongs the glory. And I pray that as we look into your word this evening, that you might reveal to us your glory, that all the vain things of this world would dim and be cast out of our vision and be pulled out of our hearts that we might make room for him, who alone is worthy of all of our worship and praise. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, just over a week ago, as my family was on vacation, we spent one evening with my in-laws watching the relatively recent television game show known as Deal or No Deal, hosted by the nearly hairless Howie Mandel. And having never seen this show before, I, I really didn't know what the objective of this game show was all about. Now, of course, in any game show, the objective is to make money. But usually, the contestants are required to answer some questions or demonstrate some kind of skill, but, but not in deal or no deal. It's basically a show about gambling, whereby the contestants guess an assortment of numbers and try to narrow their way down until what is remaining is the top million-dollar prize. Now, along the way, the risk keeps increasing. As their dollar values increase, the bank will call and offer the contestant a deal. They can cash in rather than, uh, cash in rather than move up higher and also increase their risk that they will practically lose everything. So here my family is watching this show. We're on the edge of our seats watching this woman who had her ex-husband, yet renewed fiancé, in support for her, watching this woman begin to self-destruct as she accumulated up to an impressive $133,000. Hers for the taking. But in the very next step, she began to tumble and fall all the way down to a measly $100. Well, my sister-in-law summed it up nicely, saying, it's all about greed. We have television shows that entertain us with people gambling today. The idols of our age scream from us from the television shows available, from the products we are told to buy, from the various quests people pursue to find happiness. Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. The problem of idolatry in many ways is the story of the Bible. God calls Abraham away from his home. He calls him to leave his home, his family, and his false gods and make a new start in Canaan. The book of Genesis records Jacob and others, Jacob and his wives, repeatedly struggling and dabbling with household idols as 
they suffer many things and learn hard lessons about what it means to fall and pledge their devotion to Yahweh. The Lord intervened. He remembered his people in Egypt and redeemed them from the house of bondage, overthrowing the false gods of Egypt by sensational and powerful plagues. And of course, you recall that after Israel had successfully crossed the Red Sea by the Lord's mighty power, overthrowing Pharaoh and his army, how Israel put pressure, pressured Aaron to fashion for them golden calves while Moses was alone with God up on Mount Sinai. The people of Israel make their way into the promised land and yet neglect to eradicate the land of the pagans there, tolerating their presence and increasingly adopting and following their practices of worship and idolatry. Moses warned God's people. Joshua warned God's people, choose this day whom you will serve. It says repeatedly in the book of Judges that the people did whatever was right in their own eyes, a consequence of chasing after idols. God would raise up a righteous king in David to rule and lead Israel in a godly fashion. But sadly, his descendants were not faithful to keep devotion to Yahweh and increasingly gave way to idolatry. And so when God's gracious forbearance could endure no longer, the Lord made good on his threat to cast his people out of the land, to exile them into a foreign land. Second Kings 17.15 offers this summary. It says, because they rejected his decrees and covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did things the Lord had forbidden them to do. There are some scholars that suggest that the exile mostly cured Israel of her idolatry, at least in terms of worshiping graven images. And that is true at the surface level. But as we come into the New Testament, we find Jesus and his disciples encountering many of the new entrenched idolatries of the heart. Israel's leaders made an idol of the temple, refusing to believe Jesus' warning that the temple will be torn down and destroyed within a generation. Other leaders made an idol of the law of Moses, using it like a weapon to beat people down, to exclude people rather than to lovingly direct them to worship our gracious God. Heart issues of pride, covetous greed, and self-righteousness kept many out of the kingdom of God. Of God, Paul goes on to helpfully summarize the nature of idolatry in Romans chapter 1. When he writes, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. The issue at stake with Moses and Israel at Sinai was the glory of God. The issue at stake in Paul's writing, Romans 1, is the glory of the invisible God. And the issue at stake in Psalm 115 is ultimately about the glory of God. See how it begins in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Human nature is notorious, notoriously self-centered. It's all about you. Have it your way. We repeatedly hear the narcissistic marketing slogans of our day. Our first idol to contend with is ourselves. We are all tempted to worship the God of self. But as the word instructs us, it's not about us. To God alone be the glory, and God will share his glory with no one. Now, the text gives two reasons for God's worthiness is a God of love. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture. And he is the faithful God who always delivers his people out of their distress. In verse 2, the psalmist asks, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Now, the enemy nations surrounding Israel worship foreign pagan gods, and they would mock Israel for worshiping an invisible God. You see, Yahweh was not represented, represented by an image of a bull or a serpent or a man or any other created thing. He cannot be represented by iron, wood, or stone. Common Israelites could not enter the inner sanctuaries of the temple, only the priests, and only the high priest to the place of the Holy of Holies, just once a year. Inside the most holy place, there were cherubim, who were not to be worshipped, but were servants at the footstool of God, the very Ark of the Covenant. Later in Israel's history, her occupiers would mock her for not worshiping a real God. The Romans called the early Christians atheists because they did not worship images. What set early Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world is that the followers of Christ had no temple, had no priests, offered no sacrifices because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the high priest. And Jesus made the one great final sacrifice of his own very life on our behalf. And Jesus, who was sacrificed, who was died and buried and rose again, now sits at the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf. And so we can answer the enemies of the cross with the same line from verse 3 in this psalm. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 
You see, we have a God who came to us. We have a God who came to serve us, to take up human flesh and to bear our burdens. But upon accomplishing his mission, he returned to his rightful place at his throne in heaven. And from there he rules with unlimited power, unrestrained and unhindered by the limits of creation. His is a power omnipotent, of absolute control, and he does all his pleasurable will, unhindered, unbounded. Nothing at all frustrates his plans or purposes. Now people cynically may ask, where is your God in times of sorrow and suffering? we can find consolation in the truth of the gospel when we compare what the Christian gospel teaches. The false gods and idols have nothing of substance to offer. But what we have is not only a God who became incarnate, but a God who bore our burdens. In Christ Jesus, we have a Savior who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses We have a Redeemer who faced evil head-on, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And with this blood purchased men for God to enjoy eternal fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Yes, we have a God who is with us in sorrow. The Lord provides healing balm. Consolation to those who suffer the various afflictions of the body, the mind, broken relationships, material want, and other afflictions in this cursed world. That is something that no idol is willing or able to provide. Not only is our God a jealous God, Jealous for his own glory, he also is a God who warns his people about the grave dangers of idolatry out of concern for his people's welfare. Now, one of the primary roles of the Old Testament prophets was to denounce the practice of idol worship in Israel and to repeatedly call them, beckon them to return to covenant loyalty to Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 2 offers a stinging indictment against idolatry. I read you a portion of it. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. With very degrading and humiliating language, Jeremiah illustrates the desperation of fallen man, chasing after vain and worthless idols, assuming that they will fulfill them, but only finding themselves empty-handed and left dry. 
he again denounces the folly of idolatry verses later. They say to wood, you are my father, and to stone you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. People who trust in idols find themselves constantly disappointed. And they multiply idols to their own shame. Well, in echoing fashion, our psalmist in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, offers his own take of making a mockery, exposing the folly of those who craft and follow after idols. These idols that are made of silver and gold may look nice on the mantle, and yet they are but mere worksmanship of men. They have mouths, but they are mute. They have eyes, but they are blind. They have head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Eyes and ears and mouth and nose, but they cannot save. They are helpless to assist people, and they are powerless against Almighty God. We find a comical situation of combat in Scripture where Yahweh takes on the Philistine god Dagon. You might recall the story from 1 Samuel, where the Ark of the Covenant is captured away from Shiloh because of the foolishness of Eli's sons carrying the Ark into battle as though it were a trinket or some sort of charm. But as the Philistine victors bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their god Dagon, the next day they find their god fall down, prostrate before the Ark. They prop him back up. And the next day they come in and once again, Dagon is fallen with his head and his hands broken off. God will suffer no rivals. No idol is a match for the Lord our God. In another showdown of hilarity, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a little contest. Each side will build an altar and lay upon it a slain bull and call upon their God and the God that answers with fire, he is God. And so the prophets of Baal, having prepared their altar of sacrifice, for hours on end cry out to Baal, calling upon the rain god who's been suffered no rain on Israel for three years. They cry out to him. They beat themselves. They whip themselves. They slash themselves until their blood pours out. And yet Baal does not answer. Elijah taunts them, suggesting that perhaps Baal was traveling or was relieving himself or his cell phone service was beyond contact. He doesn't answer. When Elijah's turn comes up, he calmly instructs his servants to 
douse his sacrifice in wood with water. Three times. Praise. And the fire of the Lord comes down to consume not only the altar, not only the sacrifice, but licks up the water and the stones of the altar. And so the people cry out, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Israel needed a wake-up call. Verse 8 offers us such a wake-up call. By showing us the consequences of idolatry, it says that those who make them will become like them, and so do all who trust in them. God made man in his own image to reflect his, reflect his likeness on earth, and yet fallen, corrupt men make gods in their own image. A pale likeness in comparison. The maxim is true, we become what we worship. If we worship vain nothings, we too become vain and worthless. Paul lays out this logic in Romans 1 where he explains that those who worship false gods will degenerate into base human depravity. Immorality always follows idolatry. We become less human. Mere brute beast, enslaved to carnal lust. Yes, we become like what we worship. But we may ask, why do people make idols? I think one simple answer is that people make idols because they want control. We want to manipulate God. We want to make bargains with the Almighty. In our pride, we refuse to come to God on his terms. We want to do something about our condition, about our problem of guilt. We are committed to our own self-salvation projects. We are prejudiced to God's sovereign control over our lives. It offends us. We must submit ourselves to him. We have an allergy against the gospel of God's grace. It seems unthinkable that God would initiate with us and set the terms for the relationship. He leaves no room for bargaining. The God who initiated covenant with our forefathers declared from the very beginning that he himself would fulfill the obligations when we failed to keep our end of the covenant. That fulfillment has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. Christ is our Redeemer and Savior who satisfies the righteous requirements of God, perfectly fulfilling his law, and quenching the very wrath of God on all of us lawbreakers who failed to measure up. We may ask ourselves, what things do we make out to be idols in our lives? Tim, Pastor Tim Keller makes the point that if you want to know what your idols are, look at your fears like overturning a rock in the woods to find 
little critters crawling around. We merely have to overturn the strongest human emotion in our hearts to find the idols that are embedded and hidden underneath. Now, many idols are obvious, exposed in our fear and our anger and our control. The obvious idols of money, the pursuit of material things, falsely trusting in financial security, the sensual, sensual pleasure of gratifying the body's desires for food, drink, and sex, our quest for power, to control our circumstances or other people, betray the idolatries of our hearts. But there are other less obvious idols. Many of us struggle with the fear of man, with an insatiable desire for other people's approval. We worship the idol of beauty, living in a body image culture, filled with cosmetics and fad diets and eating disorders to boot, and all manner of dysfunctional human behavior. We can even make idols of good things. The church, ministry, faithful service, if done out of pride, or any notion that somehow I am paying back God or seeking the praise and approval of others is tainted with idolatry. The family, God's good gift to us, can be a pursuit, an idolatrous pursuit, whether it's a single person's quest for a spouse or a couple yearning for children or a parent's controlling obsession over his or her children's lives. All of these things can border on the idolatrous, if not fully yielded to the lordship of Jesus Christ. How do we battle against idolatry in our lives? Well, the psalmist in verses 9 through 11 offers us a threefold exhortation to trust in the Lord, O house of Israel. Trust in the Lord, O house of Aaron. Trust in the Lord, all of you who fear the Lord. You see, the heart, at the heart of the problem of idolatry is our lack of fundamental trust in the provision and promises of Almighty God. So we attack it by being grounded in the truth of who God is building a strong foundation upon his precious promises. We're reminded here that God alone is our help and our shield. He is a helper. God is a servant who answers when we cry to him. And yet God is a warrior who protects us and defends us, who responds to us when we cry to him in distress. Of course, we live in a day and age with many competing voices. Whether it's government wooing us to trust in political agendas, we know that princes cannot save us. Whether it's economic policies that promise prosperity, we know there is no utopia on earth. Our hope is not in medical science. Even as amazing the things that they can do today are, 
all of us will die. All of us will suffer in one way, shape, or form. But Scripture affirms that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day as God reveals his glory in us. And as we learn to abide in Christ, to keep in step with his Holy Spirit, Friends, as we walk with Jesus Christ, we find that the only secure way of true blessing is on his pathway of righteousness and walking with him and seeking his fellowship and face all of our days. The psalmist closes in verses 12 through 18 with a meditation upon blessing. The Lord remembers his people and he blesses them. As we take in this list of blessings upon the family, on the home, on the Lord's provision for us, it points us to the ultimate freedom we gain, the deliverance we need from our sin-cursed idolatry. The scripture calls upon us to look upon Jesus with eyes of faith, to fix our eyes on him, whom Paul describes in Colossians 1 as the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We only find ourselves set free from idolatry as we learn to come to Jesus, to believe upon and trust him as our creator who made all things for his own glory. As we come to him as our only redeemer, the one that can reconcile us to our father, to whom is due the glory, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Christ. We owe all glory. One of my favorite scenes from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series comes from the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that story, we find young Lucy Pavinzi coming upon a magic book of spells. Her, she and her companions are trapped on an island captured, so to speak, by invisible creatures who insist that Lucy must find this book of spells in the house of a wizard. And after reciting the proper spell, these creatures will be made visible once again. Well, Lucy very fearfully meanders her way through the wizard's home finds this magic book of spells. And as she is searching through the book for the right spell, she comes upon another spell. 
that promises to make her the most beautiful woman in the world. Her mind begins to imagine suitors coming to woo her affections. She fantasizes about great kings and armies battling and out, killing one another to claim her favor. But as much as these fantasies tempted her, none compared to the realization that casting this spell would make her more beautiful than her older sister, Susan. whose beauty she has coveted as far back as she can remember. And just as Lucy is about to recite the spell, the very face of Aslan, the Christ figure, appears on the page of the book, and gazing into his eyes, beholding his holy beauty, breaks a spell over her, returning Lucy to her senses. And with restored sanity, Lucy is able to fulfill her duty and rescue herself and her friends. Like Lucy, you and I are captivated by the things of this world that promise what our hearts desire. None of them can satisfy. They all fail to deliver. And by pursuing them, we create more harm than good. The only cure to our addictive tendency to idolatry is to gaze upon the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May we fix our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might enjoy deliverance from idols and enjoy the blessings of the ultimate fellowship with God in this life and the life everlasting. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are beautiful and worthy of our adoration. To you alone belongs the glory. And I pray that you would captivate us with your beauty and your glory, that we might turn away from the worthless and vain nothings of earth, that we might find our joy and our heart satisfaction alone in fellowship with you. Sustain us, go with us this week, May you be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.